talking to, and there have been several different explanations offered for that. One is Jesus was mistaken. He was in error about when he thought he would return, and oops, Jesus. Okay, let's just cross that one off. Um, We're not comfortable with that one. There are better options. Some have tried to say, well, this generation really doesn't mean literally this generation. It probably refers to some future uh, folk. Um, Scholars kind of tend to poo-poo that often. Uh, D.A. Carson says, this generation can only with the greatest difficulty be made to mean anything other than a generation living when Jesus spoke. And Grant Osborne's even blunter. He said, this generation in the Gospels always means the people of Jesus' own time. Not, as some have proposed, the generation of the last days in history, the Jewish people, the human race in general, or the sinful people. So that's probably not our best option either. I I think the most helpful way for me to think about it is to think about what exactly Jesus means by these things. And that, in fact, what he's referring to are likely the events that he's just been talking about that led up to and included the actual destruction of the temple we talked about last week in 70 A.D., It functions prophetically, almost like a scale model of what will ultimately happen. And Jesus says, once that's happened, then I am right at the gate, ready to come in. It could happen at any time. It's like the stage is set, all the players are on the stage, and all we're waiting for is for the Father to say, action. And when He does, then it happens. And Jesus says his words are sure. His words are as sure to come pass as the temple was to be destroyed. His words are as sure to come pass as creation itself. More sure than creation itself. More sure than the earth under your feet and the stars in the sky is Jesus' promise to return. So let's dig in having addressed that briefly, the rest of the chapter. And and to do that, I'd like to share with you a story. Some of you may recall this. When I lived in Texas before I moved to North Carolina years ago, um, I was working as a civil engineer in downtown Fort Worth. And it was my practice over my lunch hour to go over to the Y and work out, lift weights uh, over my lunch hour. And so one day I go over there, I go up, I lock my stuff in my locker, I go up to do my workout, I come down. At the end of lunch hour, I'm getting ready to... I uh, get in my locker and shower up and go back to the office, and I, uh, I hear a guy, a couple uh, sets of lockers away, go, hey, somebody, somebody stole my stuff. Somebody broke into my locker. And I'm thinking, you sucker, lock your locker. Okay, that's the moral of the story. Lock your locker. And then I look at my locker, and the lock's open. And I open the door, and my stuff is gone. A thief had snuck into the Y while I was working out over lunch hour with a tool where he could break every lock off of every locker of everybody working out, and he, he stole everything that was in there from us, everything that was of value. Now, this really bothered me. I had revenge fantasies about this f- for a long time. I used to... Uh, I, I would imagine coming down just a few minutes earlier. You know, after my workout, I call it being all jaked up. It's kind of like being all jacked up, only, only bigger. 
you know, come down from lifting weights, and I catch the guy in the act of breaking into my locker. Oh, I used to have fantasies about, about that. Um, or at least I had fantasies about leaving my stuff, my valuables in the office, as opposed to taking them to the, uh, to the Y and keeping them in my locker. See, if I, if, I had, if I had known, things would have been different. If I'd been ready that day, think things would have been different. But of course, I didn't know. Um, no one had warned me, and I suffered a priceless loss. I lost my wedding ring and an antique pocket watch that were both give, gifts to me uh, on my wedding day from my bride, never to be found again. Um, Jesus tells a similar story today about being ready should a thief break in in the remainder of chapter 24. The extraordinary thing about Jesus' story is he's the thief. Okay. That's, that's really the twist in the story. In, in verse 43 of, of our chapter, Jesus says, Know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. See, if you knew You'd be ready. But that's the problem. You don't know. Back at the beginning of the text we're looking at, Jesus in verse 36 says, Concerning that day and hour, the day of His coming, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. Jesus says, You don't know. No one knows outside of the Father. The angels, who are evidently smarter than you, or at least better informed than you, even they don't know. And then in something that's really kind of theologically puzzling, Jesus says, even I don't know. Okay? Even the Son doesn't know, Jesus says. Now, if you are taking our Theology for Everyday Believer class, that probably strikes you as a problem, because you're going to learn, if you haven't already, you've learned that Jesus is God. And he is omniscient, all-knowing. So what, what's this? Well, Jesus doesn't know something. What's that about? One befuddled and disoriented blogger bluntly put it this way. In sum, Jesus' knowledge was limited. The Father has a greater knowledge than the Son does. And the Father is essentially superior to the Son so that Jesus is not God. Okay, That is... Simple logic pressed way too far. Okay? Um, in taking on human form, Jesus, who is fully God, did not cease to be God, but did apparently take on certain human limitations. Limitations to his knowledge would be one case, and would his, his experience of hunger and even death. Those are human limitations that he took on. Grant Osborne says, um, when walking planet Earth, Jesus was not omnipresent. He wasn't present everywhere. He limited himself in his omnipotence, his power, and his omniscience, his knowledge. One of the most helpful ways for me to think about this is to think about um, Usain Bolt, okay? world's fastest man. You can see, they can't even take a picture of him, he's so fast. He blurs the camera. Runs the 100 meters in about nine and a half seconds. 
That's fast, really fast. But imagine that Usain Bolt was willing to enter a three-legged race with me. Okay? We're going to run the 100 meters. Um, he would no longer run a nine-and-a-half-second 100. Okay? He, he might not even think that he has run at all. Um, but he, now he's still the fastest man on the planet, right? He has just voluntarily taken on a severe limitation, me, okay? In like fashion, Christ, in taking on human flesh like us in order to redeem us, has willingly taken on certain limitations. Evidently, this not knowing about the date of his future return is a case in point. Now, to me, this is significantly different than saying Jesus made an error predicting when he would come back and saying that he would come in that generation. That would be a false prophecy by Deuteronomic standards. Jesus, Jesus would not do that and maintain his sinlessness and his integrity. So to limit his knowledge is one thing. To commit an error is another. So I wouldn't go there. But the, the point here principally is not about how Jesus' human and divine natures interact. Rather, the point is about the total, radical, absolute, unexpected, unpredictability of the timing of the return of the Son of Man. The angels don't know. Even the Son doesn't know while He's on earth. And by implication, you don't know. You cannot know. It's impossible for us to know. Jesus, you know, in spite of these limitations, he knew amazing stuff, right? When he was on earth, he knew things normal guys didn't know. He sends Peter fishing. He says, Peter, you're going to find a coin in the fish's mouth. You can pay tax with that. There is not a fish finder on earth that can do that for you, okay? Jesus knew things that we did not know. He predicted, we saw last week, the destruction of the temple that was 40 years hence. Jesus knew things that regular people did not know. But even Jesus did not know the timing of his return, he says. So, by application, neither do the guys selling the books or with the blogs or the websites. Don't buy them. Don't read them. They don't know. They can't know. Okay? It's nonsense. John Piper says, when our future perspective becomes chronological instead of theological, then faith is endangered. The more detailed one attempts to map out the future, he says, the more inferences one must make which are not explicit in the Scripture. Therefore, the tendency of the imagination to fill the gaps increases and the probability of erroneous calculation grows. So people have been setting dates of when Jesus is going to come back since at least 500 A.D. Okay? They thought he was coming in the year 500. And then famously, the Jehovah Witnesses were predicting that he would come in 1914. That didn't work. Then they picked 1925. That didn't work. More recently, we had 88 reasons why the rapture will happen in 1988. That didn't work out so good. Um, Harold Camping famously predicted 1994. Then 2011. We're still waiting. Don't buy the books. Okay. Don't read the blogs. Nobody knows. Okay. To not know is 
inevitable. But it's also perilous not knowing. And, and Jesus reveals some protection for us by means of a little history lesson here about our not knowing. He says, For as were the days of Noah, so will the coming of so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days, before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware <clears throat> until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Several observations on this little history lesson Jesus gives. One, Jesus is happy to present to us and for us to believe that Noah really lived and he really built an ark. Jesus treats it like history. Secondly, Jesus talks about the flood as the great judgment of God. It represents God's severest judgment of total destruction. But, but most critical for our conversation today, what Jesus is teaching us today, the flood was totally unexpected. Okay? It, it happened amidst the everyday, just like any other day. A day just like this day, for instance. This is how Jesus says it will be when he returns. A great and totally unexpected judgment resulting in devastating loss to many. And so now he adds to the little history lesson two contemporary examples to teach us this. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. Another good reason not to doze during the sermon. Um, so just like in Noah's days, right? The imagery is, hey, everyday stuff is just happening. People are getting married, having, having wedding parties. People are working at the mill. People are, are out in the field. We could just as easily say, folks are in at the office. People are going to school. It's just everyday stuff. But it's also imagery of people who are in relationship together, um, of coworkers, maybe family members. I wonder, could that be a father and a son in Jesus' field? Or two brothers, maybe? Are those two sisters that are working the mill, or is that a mother and a daughter, maybe? Luke adds one little detail to this when he tells Jesus' teaching. He says, I tell you, in that night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. Um, could this be a husband and a wife? And, and suddenly, unexpectedly, um, one is taken to a devastating judgment and the other is spared. Just like that, in the middle of the week, in the middle of a work day, a normal day, just like any other day. Just like this day, really. Now, when Jesus tells the story, it's not entirely clear whether it's good to be left behind or bad to be left behind. We don't know if the one is taken in rescue or the one's taken in judgment. Um, probably, uh, I'm inclined to lean towards, the, by the context, leaning towards the, the one being taken in judgment rather than rescue. 
Because you look back in verse 39 where in Noah's story, people were swept away in, in judgment by the flood. It's not a huge point, but it does mess up some book titles. And uh, Larry Norman's famous song, probably going to need a rewrite at this point in time in terms of being left behind. But that's not Jesus' main point. Okay? The main point is the suddenness and the unexpectedness of His coming amidst ordinary days. Nobody knew. And so brothers and sisters and co-workers were taken in judgment in the middle of an ordinary day. Just like that. Jesus now adds yet another story to underscore the importance of living ready in light of our inevitable ignorance about the timing of these matters. He says, know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Let me paraphrase it this way. If the guy at the Y had known at what time during his workout the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his locker be broken into. Indeed, he would have been all jaked up and he would have caught said thief and inserted said thief into said locker until said authorities came to arrest him. <laughs> Hence the revenge fantasy goes. Um, if someone had told me that a thief was coming to the Y on that day, or if, if there was a chance a thief was coming to the Y at all, um, I'd have been ready. Okay? I'd have been a fool not to be, okay? to go ahead and put those priceless valuables in that locker when I knew that there was a thief coming. Now, if someone said to you, hey, the guy that lives next to you in your apartment complex is a thief, and we saw him casing your apartment, and you went ahead and left the door unlocked anyway, what does that say about you? What does that say about what you believe? Listen closely. Jesus is warning us that a thief is coming. He is most certainly coming, and it's surer than the earth under your feet or the stars in the sky. He is coming, and Jesus should know because he's the thief. How is Jesus like a thief? Well, in this way, he comes unexpectedly when you least expect it. And to be caught off guard, unaware, not ready, you'll suffer the greatest of losses on that day. It's interesting to me. The people in Jesus' stories, Noah, people in the field, people at the mill, they weren't doing terrible things. They weren't robbing banks and stealing stuff. Okay? They were just doing everyday things. Dale Bruner says, the sin of Noah's generation was not wedding parties, it was nonchalance about God. The evil here is immersion in the everyday without thought for the last day. To get so caught up in the everyday that you don't believe in the last day. Jesus is forewarning us 
a thief is coming unexpectedly. So he says again in verse 44, Therefore you must also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Um, You must be ready. Make sure you are ready. Live ready. Don't be caught unaware, unprepared. The teaching of this passage is not, don't be surprised. You're going to be surprised. No one expects him to come when he comes. But be ready when the surprise comes. Live ready for that surprise. What does it mean to be ready? To stay awake, to keep watch. Should we be on a cloudy day, glancing at the clouds? He's coming on the clouds, you know. Watch out for the clouds. Have people tweeting. If the clouds start to be rolled back like a scroll, tweet. Mass tweet goes out, we know. Or we could prophecy geeks. We could all become prophecy geeks and we can figure out finally who that Antichrist is and what 666 really means. 666 has been added up to mean everyone from Oliver Cromwell back in England in the 1600s to Hitler, to JFK, to Henry Kissinger, to your visa card. Okay. What does Jesus have in mind when he says, be ready? There's a story Lee Eckloff tells. It, it helps me. Um, it's a story about a guy named Robbie Robbins. He was an Air Force pilot during the first Iraq War. Uh, after his 300th mission, as the war is just coming to a close, he was surprised to be given permission to immediately pull his crew together and fly his plane home. So they flew across the ocean to Massachusetts and then had a long drive to western Pennsylvania. They drove all night, and when his buddies dropped him off at his driveway just after sunup, there was a big banner across the garage that said, Welcome home, Dad. And Robbins is wondering, how did they know? No one had called, and the crew themselves hadn't expected to leave so quickly. This is what he says. When I walked into the house, the kids, about half-dressed for school, screamed, Daddy! And Susan came running down the hall. She looked terrific, hair fixed, makeup on, crisp yellow dress. How did you know, he said. She said, I didn't. Through tears of joy, she continued saying, once we knew the war was over, we knew you'd be home one of these days. We knew you'd try to surprise us. So we were ready every day. Live ready. Live ready. He's coming at a day, even an hour, when we do not expect him to come. On a normal day, just like any other day, just like this day. We must be ready every day. We must live ready. Jesus drives the time frame down to a day. And he says, essentially, don't live a day without being ready. You don't know the day. It'd be silly, bordering on dangerous, to go AWOL for a day from practicing your faith to just go off the reservation spiritually and self-indulge in whatever you want for a day. Jesus says, live every day ready. And he pushes it even farther than that. He says, every hour. You don't know the hour. So it'd be silly bordering on dangers to just go off the reservation for an hour, to just self-indulge in that video you're not supposed to watch for an hour. Because you don't know whether it's that hour. 
that he'll return. You never know. You cannot know. So Jesus says, therefore, you also must be ready. Actually, he says, y'all also must be ready. It's plural. Y'all must be ready. And the idea behind that seems to be that this is something we have to do together. That readiness alone doesn't happen well. But we together can help each other be ready. Help each other live every day ready. Jesus is about to give us some specific instructions about what this looks like, readiness. Let me, let me make a suggestion. How about we memorize this verse? This is a church family. I'm terrible at scripture memory. It's one of my great weaknesses, uh, one of my many great weaknesses. I can do this one. It's short. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming in an hour you do not expect. Why don't we memorize that? And let's work it somehow into the fabric of our day. I thought briefly about Live Ready 2444 t-shirts, but I don't think I can pull that off. So what if somewhere, visibly every day, you just put 2444, and you remembered that verse? Therefore, you also must be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. And you let that shape your day. You didn't let it slide off the radar that day. You remembered that this could be that day. It could be a day just like this, that he would come. Jesus gives us some more ammo for that in the last verses that we'll think about today. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. To be ready then, according to Jesus, is not principally about being prophetically obsessed, reading all the signs, got all the charts, all the all stuff. At its core, living ready is to be obedient. To be Obedient because you believe the promise that he really is coming on an ordinary day and you live faithfully and wisely in light of that promise. So that when the master returns, you're doing what the master, you're found doing what the master assigned you to do. And the special emphasis seems to be caring for the people around you, the people who are in your charge. Set them over his household and Give them their food in their proper time. That you are, if I can quote Jesus, you're loving your neighbor on that day. That's wise. That's faithful. And it'll be good for you. You'll be blessed on that day. It's going to be really good for you. You're going to be rewarded with an even greater privileged responsibility if you're ready, if you're found faithful to your charge. Now, There's another servant as Jesus' story continues. Actually, it's interesting. It sounds like it's the same servant who's taken a turn in a different direction. He says, but if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, suddenly, though once he was faithful and wise, now he's marked by wickedness and folly, by unbelief in the master's return. He says to himself, surely it won't happen soon, if, if it happens at all. 
the master has delayed. And as a result, his life is marked by selfishness and abuse of those who are in his charge. Again, the manifestation of this is how we treat those we are charged to love and care for. So if Jesus came on an ordinary day, husbands, would he find you sacrificially loving your wife on that day? If he just showed up on an ordinary day? Parents, would would he find you lovingly raising up your children in the ways of the Lord if he just came on an ordinary day? Or would he find you provoking them to anger? Maybe you're a small group leader or elder or maybe even a pastor. If he came on an ordinary day, would he find you willingly loving and shepherding those who are entrusted to you by by being an example to the flock like Peter calls us to do? And then there's those neighbors, real neighbors. On an ordinary day, would he find you loving your neighbors? If Jesus were come unexpectedly these days, and is there any day more unexpectedly than these days, right now? We always think it's going to be way future. Would you be found faithful and wise, caring for those around you? Or would you be found selfishly indulgent and abusive? It's interesting, the shaping factor that takes a good, faithful servant and bends him towards evil is just that he doesn't think the master's going to come. And so he can get away with it. Imagine how powerful a defense that would have been if he had thought the master was coming back that day. How that would have changed the way he acted towards those around him. Dale Bruner says, We tend to think of Christian hope as an elective as a good doctrine for the elderly, as an appendix to Christian faith and love, as a rather theological enterprise having to do with far-off things. He says, but Jesus everywhere teaches that hope, the hope of Jesus' return or its absence, determines the way people treat people here and now. Are you spiritually vulnerable to these temptations? Because it slipped off your radar that Jesus is going to come back unexpectedly on an ordinary day, any day. A day like this day. It's a really important thing to think through because of what Jesus says next. He says, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. And in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Cut him to pieces, literal or figurative. That can't be good. That's a picture of the worst of judgments, the severest of judgments, where weeping and gnashing of teeth takes place. And some have said, this is not very loving of Jesus. But it's also been said that if judgment is fact, then love must warn. How could he not warn us? Now, this close to a seminary, 
the danger is when you teach about a passage of Scripture like this, many of you have systems and boxes, and you're desperately trying to figure out which box does your pastor belong in. Okay? Is he ah this or pre or post that? Um, to make that your preoccupation, your takeaway from this morning would be more than foolish. Jesus is not primarily concerned with the categories of your pastor's eschatology or the details of your own. The one great teaching of Jesus this morning is about that one great detail that any biblically sound system of eschatology believes that he is coming back. That he is coming back quite unexpectedly to reward and to judge The real question is, will you be found living ready if he comes on just any ordinary day? Is that your pattern? Are you living faithfully so that you'll be ready on his unexpected return? Living wisely, loving neighbors, caring for those under your charge. That's your pattern every day. So that whatever day he comes, you're living ready. this also really ups the urgency for those of you who are coming to North Wake and you're putting off the decision of whether or not you want to become a Christ follower or not. And you're wanting to explore more, think more, consider more, delay more. Because whatever you do, Jesus is making it clear you don't want to be caught unaware, unbelieving, unfaithful on that day. And Jesus promises he's going to come on a day when you least expect it. Maybe on a day in the middle of the week when you're at work or it could be a weekend when you're relaxing at home. But it's going to be a day just like this one. Nothing special. Martin Luther is credited with saying that Christians are to live as though Jesus died this morning, rose this afternoon, and was coming this evening. If that was true, if he was coming this evening, would you be ready? Would you pray with me, please? Father, these these words of your sons, it's like our life is put under a microscope and all of a sudden, uh, things are not right. We are not living right. We, We know we're not living ready all of our days. And some of that's because we doubt and some of that's because we're distracted and we forget. And I pray that you would have mercy on us and forgive us the foolishness, the great risk of living unready day after day after day for some of us in some ways. And so, Lord, in mercy this morning, call us, every one of us, to a new readiness, to a new faithfulness, a new obedience, a new expectancy that Jesus is going to keep his promise. This may be the clearest promise that he makes. Make plain to us, Father, that which we must do to live in this way, ready for the unexpected, joyous return of your Son. As we sang, Jesus, come. We pray this in your name. Amen.